Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Solar Punk. Today, we're very excited to have Mike Brown with us on the show. Mike is a former director of the Defense Innovation Unit at the U.S. Department of Defense. The IU, established back in 2015, fields leading-edge commercial capabilities to the military faster and more cost-effectively than traditional defense acquisition methods. With offices in Silicon Valley, Boston, Austin, and at the Pentagon, DIU is embedded in key innovation ecosystems across the country and builds direct relationships with organizations that strengthen our national security innovation base. Previously, Mike served two years as a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow at DOD. He's the co-author of a Pentagon study on China's participation in the U.S. venture ecosystem, a catalyst for the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, also known as FIRMA. FIRMA was signed into law in August 2018 and provided expanded jurisdiction to the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States, a.k.a. CFIUS. And now, onto the show. Mike, we're so happy to have you here with us today. Thanks, Lucas. Happy to be here. So, Mike, to get us started, for those who don't know, could you give us a quick overview of what is DIU and its core mission? Yes. Uh, so about seven years ago, uh, Ash Carter, then Secretary of Defense, was noticing how much innovation was happening around uh, the Pentagon, not inside it, meaning commercial technology can be a lot more important to the future of the military than it's been historically, and said, we need a way to make sure that we are working with companies and investors in a way they want to see us work with them, which means faster, more efficient. Uh, and so we set up Defense Innovation Unit to accelerate the adoption of commercial technology. So let's be scouting continuously for what technology is out there. And then we need a different process, which now DIU has invented, uh, that allows us to bring in the technology and do that in a friendly way for uh, young, innovative companies who don't have a lot of resources to spend building a federal systems division. So tell us a little bit more, Mike, about what that process is. What did that look like before DIU? So on the land of SPIRs and that whole world, what is the kind of process that DIU has pioneered here? And then I'm all, we're also very curious, how has that changed over the years? Has it been the same process from day zero and, until now, or has that evolved? Well, let's start with uh, that, that second question, Ian. So I'd say when DIU was formed, uh, Ash Carter would describe this, and I've heard him do so as, I wanted a tech bridge. I wanted an ambassador function located out in the geography where the young companies were. So we have offices in Silicon Valley, Austin, Boston, and now Chicago. So all well and good, but uh, as those listening know, if you're a, uh, a young company uh, or an investor in that company, you're not that excited about having the executive spend time as a coffee with Defense Department folks just as a uh, learning or sharing exercise. So the insight, uh, frankly, that my predecessor, Ross Shaw, had about a year in was we need to be offering contracts. We need to be offering a way for these companies to get revenue from the Department of Defense. It's not just about tech scouting. And that's an innovation we've carried forward today. And then along the way, we invented a process. We call it commercial solutions opening. You can basically think of it as a commercial process. It leverages something called other transaction authority, which definitely needs some marketing help. 
That's an authority that Congress gave to NASA in 1958 after Sputnik went up because the Congress realized that we don't really have a way of moving quickly in our intelligence community or the Defense Department. Uh, let's have something that's in contrast to the federal acquisition regulations, which uh, really governs how the government's going to buy something. And that's every bit as onerous as it sounds, federal acquisition regulations. In fact, uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. He says, what we need to do is make that federal acquisition regulations top secret. Then let's have the Chinese steal it and we'll set their acquisition back a couple of decades. And it's only funny because it's so true how cumbersome that can be to work with. So there are ninjas in the Defense Department that have learned to work with that and make it more agile. But rather than do that, uh, we're leveraging this authority, which, again, has been uh, around for a very long time, but was given to the Defense Department specifically uh, with some instructions to be using that about a, almost a decade ago now. I think that was something like 2016. So DIU, Defense Innovation Unit, is using that exclusively and has created this process, commercial solutions opening on top of other transaction authority. Okay, well, let's talk about what that means. That's a lot of jargon. But what that really means is we don't start with a requirement. So most of the uh, way capabilities brought into the Defense Department is the Defense Department says first, here's what we need and here's what we'd like you to build. That works great for an aircraft carrier, but it's not, not very good for AI software, a cyber tool, autonomous systems, because we in the commercial market have typically built that before the department asked for it. So requirements make no sense. So we skip that part. Then uh, as it relates to how the acquisition is governed, as I mentioned, we use other transaction authority. That basically allows us to go fast, be flexible, not require any onerous IP conditions. We can buy based on the government with the same IP rights any other commercial customer would have, basically not having access to your IP. That makes it a lot more friendly. We try and give uh, vendors who are looking for an opportunity with the Defense Department an answer as to whether their solution uh, can be qualified within 60 to 90 days. So lightning fast for the government, more commercial speed. And if you're chosen for a prototype contract, we, we start by asking anyone to respond to a government problem with a pitch deck or white paper that they might send to a commercial customer. So nothing special required. Of course, if we down select you to have a serious conversation there's going to be a little more back and forth and some investment required but key to what i just described is no opportunity cost you can respond to a government request without doing something special and investing resources so we down select to try and get one to three or four customers on contract that's a prototype contract and what that means is now we're going to test your solution in a military environment that process takes some time that uh, might take a year or 18 months because the government's going to set up some testing uh, procedures, some milestones. You get paid as a vendor when you meet the milestones. And then at the end of that period, we can immediately go into production. There's no recompeting that's required. You don't have to move to the federal acquisition regulations. We can do a production OT, production contract using other transaction authorities, what that means, and immediately start scaling you up. So it's been the case that a vendor, first-time vendor to DOD, has been in production with a contract within one year. Not everything works that fast, but that is super fast for the Department of Defense. Just to contrast that, on average, it takes the Defense Department nine to 26 years to bring in a capability. Now, typically, that's a big weapons platform like an F-35, and we're talking about something that's 
much less complex here, but it gives you the contrast in terms of how fast we can go and how easy we can make it for vendors to think about Department of Defense as an additional customer uh, in their business. And Mike, if you reflect back on your time at DIU, what would you say were the top you know, one to three takeaways from, from your experience and time there? Well, certainly one would be that the department needs to be thinking more about commercial technology first. There was a time when most of the technology we developed was happening within the defense enterprise, meaning the defense department labs or uh, a defense prime. Uh, My boss, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, just published a list of 14 technologies important for national security. 11 of the 14 are being led by the commercial sector. Things like we've already talked about, AI, cyber, autonomous systems, digital wearables like I'm wearing now, difficult to see in a podcast, but that's uh, extra technology that allows the department to see, am I ready as an individual to lead a mission? Do I, am I coming down with an infectious disease like COVID? Uh, before I would get on an aircraft carrier and spread that to my fellow sailors. So, so much of what we need is already being developed in the commercial world, meaning what we do in the military often isn't that unique. At the end of the a chain of things we do, sometimes there's a kinetic effect, which means we might be blowing something up. But the ability to deploy sensors, understand what that, integrate what the sensors are telling us, uh, optimize information for a decision, communicating out to a diverse workforce, all those things are being handled in the commercial world. But yet we don't think about the fact that we should be turning to commercial first. It's better. It's cheaper. It's faster. And the military needs that capability. We need to modernize much more quickly. If Ukraine has taught us anything, it's you don't know when you're going to be called on to handle the next conflict. And fortunately, the U.S. isn't directly involved there. But uh, if it had been a NATO ally, we would be. But we are supporting the Ukrainians and we can see what kind of implications that has, both for commercial technology, which has never been used in a conflict to the extent it is in Ukraine, and the fact that our supply chains are not robust enough to be able to ramp up quickly if we need to. So a lot that we can learn there, but the commercial world is going to be a lot better to help us with what we need for the future than uh, than just working within the military and its traditional suppliers. And Mike, to double click on that a little bit, uh, you know, you're seeing commercial, but and this is perhaps a, a, an obvious question to a lot of the audience here, but wh- why do you think that the DOD and the government should double down on working with very nascent startups uh, as opposed to just you know the big corporations that have been doing business with the Department of Defense for decades? Because in a lot of the technologies that we just described, uh, AI and cyber tools, let's use those as an, as an example. The technology that's on the leading edge is coming from the commercial world. So Uh, I have a lot of respect for what uh, my colleagues at uh, Lockheed and Northrop Grumman are doing, and they do things that are unique that no one else can do. But if I'm looking for the cutting edge on uh, machine learning, uh, I'm not going to turn to Northrop Grumman. I'm going to go to Google and Microsoft and other smaller companies that are developing that technology. So there's so many fields today where we need to make sure our warfighter is getting the the latest and greatest. And if we're not careful about making sure that commercial technology is migrating to the military. Because it's commercial, our adversaries may have the advantage of using that technology against us. That, that's something we we have to avoid. So to both modernize the military, make sure it's able to stretch the budget farthest, make sure our warfighters have the latest technology, and that it's upgraded as commercial technology improves and those platforms or solutions upgrade. That's what happens 
when we're buying a cell phone these days, right? Uh, it's we're getting the benefit of all of what's come before. We need that same benefit going to our warfighters. So that's the reason we need to be turning to smaller, more innovative companies. We've introduced a hundred new vendors to DOD, and forty percent of those are first-time vendors. So never done business with a department before, and we need that technology uh, to support the military and give them the best capability. So uh, I'm, it all makes sense. It's an incredible accomplishment to have that many new vendors. What are the biggest challenges as you've kind of gone down this path over the years, and how how do you grade the success of our our progress along that? So. Uh, the biggest challenge is that the department is more used to and rooted in the processes that help us buy military gear. Um, this was basically put in place back when Secretary McNamara was Defense Secretary. So we're talking about the Kennedy administration. So uh, this is what helps us with the uh, requirements process, acquisition process, and budgeting process. Those are, Think about those as the three legs of a stool to bring in new capability in the Defense Department. Okay, if I'm going to bring in a new jet, I can I could argue about where those need to be improved, but I, I understand why that system is in place. But for the kind of technology that we're talking about here, uh, whether it's training pilots using virtual reality or the digital wearables I just described or small drones that are handheld, that process doesn't work well. And we haven't adapted that. So we need a complementary process. I call it fast follower strategy. We need to fast follow what the commercial market is doing. And that requires us to set up things a little bit differently than we have traditionally. So I'm happy to describe that if you want to talk about that further. But that's what we need is a complementary process to accelerate commercial technology and do that on more friendly terms. In terms of our success, yeah, I'm excited about what we've done. Uh, 50 capabilities that we've transitioned to the military, the 100 new vendors, our transition rate of starting a project and getting production contract to a vendor and getting that in warfighters' hands is now at 50%. That's five uh, to 10 times what other mechanisms are, like the SBI program that you mentioned before. So it's a lot a faster process and uh, much higher likelihood of making the transition to uh, production, getting into warfighters' hands. That's our ultimate measure of success is did it get into warfighters' hands? Not did we demonstrate something, did we experiment, something like that. So I say that uh, in total, we've been responsible for vendors that now have about $5 billion of revenue with the Department of Defense. And that's a big number because it starts with a B. But in that same time, uh, the Defense Department has bought $1 trillion worth of military gear. So while I'm proud of the successes at DIU, it's a drop in the bucket. We're only scratching the surface on what can be done. And it's not consistent with the fact that 11 of the 14 technologies the department needs are commercial. So we need to have a much wider aperture. Uh, we need to be influencing that venture capital investment, which is $350 billion a year. We need to be influencing that to a much greater extent. That's three times the record level science and technology or R&D budget that the Pentagon uh, will get in fiscal 23 if the Congress approves the president's budget request. So we're not acting like that's an important source of future technology. And we don't have a way to ingest that easily back to the fast follower strategy. We need to adopt some different things. So maybe it would be helpful then is if you could outline the different avenues that companies right now are using to sell to the government, right? So DIU's had some incredible success, but as you said, it's a drop in the bucket in the bigger picture. We want to have even more success. What are the other avenues that companies are using to go down that acquisition route? 
and what are, if you could almost weigh kind of the pros and cons, right? And I'm sure there's uh, benefits and downsides to all of the options that are on the table. Yeah, so uh, one would be what you mentioned, the Small Business Innovation uh, Grant, Innovation Research Grant, SBIR. So that has been modernized recently. I give AFWorks, which is operating within the Air Force, a lot of credit there. But I don't think it's as flexible as what we're doing at, at DIU. So it has to use money that is allocated from the Small Business Administration. Uh, if you know how that program works, basically a percentage of all the R&D that happens across the federal government is taxed. That's like a two or three percent tax. And that then is given back to the organization that was taxed to to provide in these SBIR grants. So there's a series of hurdles, limitations on how much money you can give at one time, the type of companies you can give that to, where venture capital is often excluded from that because you're looking for truly small businesses, 500 people or less, which means in my mind, there's almost an adverse selection to the companies who are not larger, who are not backed by the best private sources of capital. It may make sense if I'm doing some longer term research, but it's not designed to how do I get capability from a successful vendor, which may be venture back, which may be larger than 500 employees. How do I get that quickly into the department? So that's a little bit of the difference between what SBIR is and what we're doing. It happens, the grants are happen through a series of phases. So you can't go direct to production. I've got to start with a phase one or phase two, and then I graduate to a phase three. Often companies are frustrated. They think getting an award through an SBR program really means you're on your way to getting a production contract. Not the case at all. Once I get that grant from AFWorks, now I've got to find the customer at DOD who cares about this solution and basically create that opportunity. So we basically don't start the process with vendors until we already have that customer within DOD identified and the money allocated from their budget to say, we're going to scale this if it's successful. The other way would be a traditional program, a record. So uh, this is difficult for a small company to do. Most of the time, you'd have to work with a prime uh, contractor uh, that has pluses and minuses. Great. I've got basically a distribution channel of the Defense Department. I don't have to worry about what it does it take to sell to the federal government. Okay, the disadvantage, I'm not directly tied to the customer. I got to negotiate with the prime. So that has has pros and cons. But that would be the more traditional method. But now you're going back to that on average, nine to 26 years to get a new capability in place. So much slower process, much less direct feedback from the end user or the warfighter in that process. Uh, those are three of the primary ways to come into the Defense Department. And Mike, if you look at the most common missteps that smaller companies <clears throat> make when trying to pursue the path for a government contract, what would you say uh, that they are, and how would you advise those companies to not make those mistakes? I don't know if I'd call them missteps. I think there's a lot to understand. I've certainly learned a lot in the uh, six years I've been in government service that I had no idea uh, how, the, how the government worked to buy things uh, when I started. So there are such arcane things as colors of money. That means uh, think about, uh, you know, as a company, what you'd spend on R&D, marketing, selling expense. The government calls those colors of money and designates a specific color for an activity. There's R&D dollars, there's procurement dollars, there's what's called O&M or operations and maintenance dollars, and you can't mix those. So while we might budget for that in the private sector, if I'm a CEO, I can move money across categories because money is fungible. And it didn't come to me uh, from a venture firm saying you can only spend this on R&D. Uh, it's left to my judgment. What's the best use of the capital? The government doesn't operate that way. The Congress specifies that. The other 
Difficult thing to understand would be the acquisition process, which we described. We're trying to make that easier at DIU with the commercial solutions opening process I described. And then just the incredible length of time to get a budget done and the, the lack of flexibility or lack of agility. What I mean by that is senior DOD leaders do not have the flexibility to say, huh, this is an emerging threat. I've really got to allocate money there or this opportunity can be leveraged. I can leverage some new commercial technology to solve that. It takes two and a half years to program $1 of spending at DOD, which means I had to know exactly what I wanted to spend two and a half years ago. Um, think about that analogy in the corporate world. If, if I'm a CEO, which I've been, and I told my board of directors, here's the budget. We don't make any changes. And it's going to be, in, this is what we're going to spend three years from now. I'd be laughed out of the boardroom because we can't predict the future. So that's the way our government operates and it, it does need to change. There is some efforts in Congress now looking at what, how we could reform that process. And I'm hoping we're going to see some great recommendations that will be adopted from, from that work. What would be, uh, the, the key recommendations that you would hope the government to enact as part of those really, changes? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. They're really two. I've had a chance to, uh, make a presentation to the commission that Congress uh, chartered for this. It's called the PPB&E Commission more government jargon, programming, planning, budgeting, and execution. That's the system that Secretary McNamara put in place. I'm sure it was state-of-the-art in 1961 from the Ford Motor Company from where he came. And it basically assumes a, li a linear systems engineering process that you can predict the future, which may have been how we designed autos in the 1950s. But the world is anything but predictable, and we have to have more agility in the process. So two things. <clears throat> what do we do uh, in the tech world because we can't predict the future? We're agile. We recognize that and we're going to move faster because you got to try something and adapt. You can't spend 10 years in a room thinking you're going to design the future or you're going to predict it. You're not. So agility is step one. We have to take that two and a half years and require from the beginning, it's only going to take one year to do the budgeting. That's DOD developing it, Congress approving it, uh, and Congress doing its job on time. As you know, the budgets have recently for the Defense Department come six months late. We're halfway into a fiscal year before we know what the actual budget is. That makes no sense either. Um, so that needs to be compressed to a year max. And if you said, I can only have a year, you'd design a process that, that got you that. Part of designing that process would be more agility and less granularity. So I can't get a, a budget approved in a year if I'm going to look at 10,000 line items. That's what the Defense Department budget looks like so that staffers on the congressional committees, not the representatives, are spending time making the trade-offs in the military for what we're going to buy. Do I want more A-10s? Do I want more uh, uh, F-35s? Is that the right place where I'm going to make these military trade-offs for our capability? I want that Secretary of Defense and the Combatant commanders making those decisions. That's not what we do today. Uh, the Congress is telling the military, no, uh, you should buy this many F-35s. No, you can't retire this old equipment early because maybe that uh, preserves some jobs in my district. Well, that's not optimizing the defense capability and the even with a large budget, the limited budget that we have. So we need fewer line items. We've got to have more trust in the Defense Department to make those trade-offs. Uh, which is what a board of directors would expect the CEO to do. You have to make the trade-offs on what we should spend, and you've got to reflect the changing conditions. We don't do that today, so we're not getting the best 
for our taxpayer dollar. Those are the changes we need to make faster and needs to be more agile. The question is going to be, how do we actually enact those changes? Because as we know, uh, change is not easy in government. Do you have any thoughts on how to actually make that happen? We need the political will to say this old system might have had its disadvantages in a world where the U.S. was the sole superpower, what's being called the unipolar moment after uh, we won the Cold War and before we saw Russia and China emerge as uh, serious threats. But now with Ukraine, uh, we may be called on to work uh, together with allies and thwart uh, an adversary or potential adversary and do it quickly. So I can't do that with three-year-old plans and the inability to move money to uh, address the latest threats or leverage new technology. So it's basically as if we're fighting with one hand behind our back and you never know when you're going to be called on to fight. So we need the political will to say that old system from 1960, that might have worked in the Cold War, but that doesn't work for the the reality we face today. And Mike, is the Ukraine war the sort of Sputnik moment to actually spark this change in your view? And what have you seen either in the government or elsewhere to, to give you the confidence to say to say that one way or the other? It should be the Sputnik moment. I definitely see the uh, the quest for understanding what the lessons are. It's pretty early on to be drawing conclusions that war is not concluded yet, but we need to be drawing some conclusions that are obvious. And I think those are that we could be called on quickly. You can't predict when you're going to be uh, asked to uh, to fight. Unfortunately, we're not in that fight directly, but of course, we're supporting uh, uh, NATO and uh, we're supporting Ukraine with uh, our gear. We're finding that we don't have enough of what's called the energetics or munitions, the things that uh, would be in a missile like the Stinger missile. Um, so we're going to need to think about resilience of those supply chains. If we were called on in a conflict, it's not necessarily going to be over with whatever the stockpile of munitions are that we have. You might be in a protracted conflict, and that's certainly what we're seeing in Ukraine. We're seeing the need to deploy more commercial technology. One of the things that DIU brought to Ukraine was the use of synthetic aperture radar. <laughs> so we started working five years ago with vendors who were pioneering this technology. It's a radar image rather than a uh, optical image, which of course we've been looking at from satellites for years or cameras that are sophisticated. So this is radar imaging. More and more satellites are producing these types of images in low earth orbit and allows you to see through clouds and at night. Turns out in February, when the Russians cross the Ukrainian border, 50% of the time Ukraine is covered in clouds. It's winter time. This allowed uh, NATO, uh, uh, Ukrainians and the press uh, because it's commercial technology, it wasn't classified to see exactly what was happening. Our intelligence community saw that the Russians were amassing more forces on the border at the same time that the Russians were producing propaganda videos showing tanks on rail cars going back to Russia. And Putin was saying, no, I'm withdrawing. I'm not moving on Ukraine. But we all know now, uh, you know, the liar that he is and was. And the intelligence community was able to share that with allies and share it with the press because it was commercial technology. That's a game changer to have that level of situational awareness that our top leaders are seeing to be shared with allies and be shared with the public. So it's going to be difficult for those who want to do harm in the world to hide. So game-changing technology that I'm very proud we were a part of of, uh, producing by uh, sponsoring uh, the development through prototype contracts and then uh, shepherding the process to make sure that uh, is bought that's being bought by the National Reconnaissance Organization to be shared with 
allies and partners. Commercial technology with a game-changing capability that successfully gets uh, brought into the Defense Department. So let me just summarize here by saying Ukraine is a wake-up call for how important commercial technology is going to be for the future. One more quick example. When before would a single company, an entrepreneur, Elon Musk, be called upon to aid in the national defense of a country? That's what happened when the Starlink capability was made available to Ukraine. We're going to see more examples like that, and we need to be uh, moving fast so that we're not behind adversaries who are using commercial technology and we're on the forefront and fielding it. So to dive in on that, Mike, I think an incredible point. So specifically, as you talk about radar, and I assume you're talking about synthetic aperture radar from yes. a company like Capella or others. So when yeah. we talk about um, SAR imagery, you, I'm, assuming, I'm saying you in the sense that it might have been you personally or people at DIU had to have the insight to realize that data could have been valuable way before the war in Ukraine started. Right, because right. you helped incubate this technology, bring it to life, et cetera. How do we make sure you and the people working at DIU are able to essentially see that far ahead and understand that those commercial needs are actually going to have great applicability on the defense side? So we have uh, at DIU, one of the things that we've done is uh, charter a dedicated team. We call them commercial engagement team to basically be continuously scouting. We know what the military problems are. And certainly one of them is always going to be increasing your situational awareness. A lot of the awareness we get from space. So we need more sensors in space and more types of sensors. So we talked about electrical optical. That's been around for decades now. But now there's going to be a series of additional technologies. Uh, synthetic aperture radar is one. Infrared is another. Radio frequency is another. So to increase situational awareness, we've got to be following those technologies and seeing when are they at a position where they could bring new complementary and resilient capability in space. The other uh, activity that we've been sponsoring is rocket launch as a service. So government doesn't need to own the rockets anymore, uh, and we don't need to own the satellites. We can buy the data as a service, and we can basically buy payload space in the rockets being sent up by private companies, folks like Rocket Lab, SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, so that we can get more of that capability in space. So uh, it's been estimated that by the end of this decade, there's going to be a thousand commercial satellites for every government satellite. We need to be riding that wave and making sure that all that data is available to our military. So we've only seen the tip of the iceberg with what has been done with SAR imagery. And we're going to see a lot more of that uh, over the next decade. And we need to be leaning into that, making the vendors successful so that we can take advantage of that capability. And if we don't, the Chinese are going to do it. So it's it's great that we have people at DAU and in the government that are kind of, one, understanding the future needs of the government, but then looking at the commercial side. On the commercial side, historically, at least um, what Lucas and I have seen from our portfolio companies and my prior experience with Synapse, uh, has been a lot of these companies end up hiring consultants to figure out how to work with the government side. So uh, whether it's specifically for SBIRs or it's lobbyists to figure out how to uh, you know work in DC, et cetera. Um, I've always maybe had the view that there are inefficiencies in the system that lead to the need for these third parties coming in to help people learn how to navigate it. Can you speak to that a little bit and get your sense of how needed that is? Um, would love your take on within DIU. Do you often see the companies you work with having consultants that broker that intro? What does that look like? So yeah, that that uh, gives me a stomachache. It, it's, uh, it's a terrible commentary that you would need to do that to do business with our government. So we should be looking for ways that eliminate that niche and make it easier. So I 
don't know of situations, although I'm sure there are some where vendors to DIU have used them, but they don't need to. Our process is so simple. I explained it earlier. You can apply to a problem, provide your solution to a problem with, with an ordinary pitch deck or white paper. It doesn't need to be anything specific to the government. And then we're going to let you know in 60 to 90 days uh, whether that's accepted and you're going to move on to a down select process or thank you for participating. And we're going to be back to you and need your solution again for another problem. We want to encourage people to come back and apply again. Uh, with 43 companies responding to every solicitation we do, most are going to hear a no. Um, and we want to make the process easy enough to where we're minimizing their opportunity cost and maximizing the number of vendors who want to participate because competition is a good thing in our system and make sure that we get the best best solution to meet meet that particular need. I think the other processes, I described them a little bit, uh, coming into a program record, working with a prime or SBIR. Unfortunately, while the folks who are using those methods are trying to make them easier, they're not that easy. That's where I see more consultants being used. And uh, so I would love to see the activity that we're undertaking at DIU be much more widespread in its use across the government. Why not make it easier? and allow for more competition. So we, in fact, uh, are pioneering a program for the Defense Department this year. We call it Immersive Commercial Acquisition Program, where we're encouraging two officers from each of the services, so Air Force, Navy, Marines, et cetera, to come with us as a cohort and spend a year with us learning what we do, then go back out to your services and basically spread the word and start implementing other transaction authority, the commercial solutions opening. So we're trying to encourage that understanding of what we do and make it more widespread in our own small way. I'd love to see that expanded. I'd love to see other folks in the department uh, jump on this train of how can we get more people trained in what DIU does so that we can increase the adoption of commercial technology across the department. And that makes it so much easier for vendors uh, to work with the department. And Mike, uh, speaking of changes that, that could be made and have been made in the, in the past few years, how big of a pain uh, have uh, cost plus contracts been uh, in your perspective? Uh, you know, I think we, we recently had NASA chief Bill Nelson say that these contracts have been a plague uh, on NASA. Uh, I'm curious for your perspective, especially re regarding the Department of Defense, and what do you think needs to be done, if anything, to, to change these? Well, it speaks to the fact that there are problems with both cost plus or fixed price. Uh, cost plus, there's very little incentive for the vendor to ensure that uh, we're keeping the cost down. Uh, and, and the longer you go in time, uh, the more of a cost overrun you could be looking at. Similarly, I heard uh, the current Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition uh, and Sustainment, uh, Bill LaPlante, talk to the fact that it's a problem if I have a fixed price contract and now I have inflation. And now there's no incentive for that vendor to continue producing what we need at Department of Defense. So there's, there's problems with those. I think this goes back to the fact that we need to be on a faster cycle. The emphasis needs to be on speed. If we're able to qualify vendors on a timely basis and give them a contract, then we've negotiated for a price that makes sense. This is how the commercial world does business. Can you imagine going to Microsoft and saying, I want a cost plus uh, you know, agreement to get your operating system? Or... You know, we're going to do a fixed price that's going to last for 30 years. That's that's equally ridiculous. So faster cycle to get the capability qualified and then refresh. We've got to build into our thinking. We're not going to buy something and it's going to be around for 40 years and we're not going to change that. 
we need to be refreshing at the same rate that technology is being developed. That's the way we're going to make sure that on the business side, we get the right contract, the right incentives in place, and then the ultimate measure of success, do we get new capability in warfighters' hands? So these, these instruments are put in place because the Defense Department takes so long to bring in a capability. Is part of the answer here that the government needs to pick more winners uh, and, and bet big on those winners? Well, I don't think it's about picking a winner and sticking with that for decades. It's about picking a winner at a point in time, giving them a production contract. And the expectation is we're going to increase competition here. That's only going to last until the next generation of technology is out. That could be as short as 18 months or two years. And we're going to be back qualifying. And if your technology is competitive, you'll win that next round and continue. And if it's not, you'll be replaced. That's what's wrong with our system today, uh, that you would pick one specification, a requirement, we call it, pick one vendor, and now I'm going to buy from you for 40 years. That makes no sense in today's environment. That's how we operate in the Department of Defense with large weapons platforms. And we should require that the design of those weapons platforms include something that Congress has legislated. It's called modular open system architecture. So our approach, I'm sorry. So think about that as a system of systems. So if I am going to qualify an aircraft, I need to recognize that the software should be separated from the hardware. I might have an avionics system, and I'm basically going to be requalifying all of those subsystems on some cadence. I'm not going to buy from a prime and never look uh, under the hood and allow the prime to decide when we do those upgrades. The government should be involved in specifying architectures that allow for those upgrades to occur frequently. So even if primes have created some of this bloat, right, we could talk about the F-35 program as an example of something that's just ballooned up to uh, large orders of magnitude. Tell us some of the positives. What are the primes doing really well that some of the new companies that just dismissed them might be overlooking? Obviously, they know how to work with the government. They know how to satisfy what the military is looking for. So that's a tremendous investment they've made in understanding the military, how to work with the federal acquisition regulations. Uh, maybe the more important capability that I'm focused on is no one is like them to integrate capability. So they are phenomenal at taking uh, different technologies and putting them together in one system. It's, it's pretty clear the Defense Department does not want to get something and then uh, along with that system says some assembly required. Here, you you put that together and figure out how it works. So it's very different from the consumer model we're used to that we all spend uh, time trying to build something at home on the weekends. It, not, not very successfully in my case. So they are great at that and we should use them for that. In fact, about 10% of the contracts from DIU go to defense primes, not because they need another avenue to get to the defense department, but because they are good at integrating capability from smaller innovative companies. And if we're trying to provide a complete solution, we turn to primes and say, can you work with these two or three companies and integrate that into a solution. So I think we, they should definitely be using them for that. So we've talked a lot about all the ways that you know government has been adapting to better understand technology and tech companies. But if we reverse this a little bit, what do you think the biggest issues are in the way that tech not fully understanding how government works? Like you have a big audience right now of all these amazing founders who are trying to work with the government. What do you want to teach them about how they should really understand uh, how the government's thinking and how the government's working? Well, the first thing I'd want to say is uh, we need you. 
pretty clear that more and more of the technology we need is going to come from the work that you're doing. The U.S. innovation ecosystem is the envy of the world. We should make that the envy of the military also. So we may not always say it. Uh, we may not have an effective way of utilizing what you're doing, but we need that technology. The second thing would be you can't spend your precious time as an entrepreneur understanding how the Defense Department works. Uh, this is why the industry has developed that you alluded to of some consultants. But I'd say rather than spend the money there, uh, figure out how you could get on programs like what DIU is offering where you don't need that, where it can be easier. I'd love to see the department help DIU get bigger so that we can offer more opportunities for uh, companies and your listeners. Uh, I, I sometimes say uh, DIU has created the two-lane highway. We've shown a highway can be built before DIU was there. It wasn't clear that could be built. But now we've got the two-lane highway. we got to make that a super highway now, a freeway of many more companies being successful, much more commercial technology being adopted, being adopted sooner, and the techniques that we've used being proliferated across the department. So that's aspirational. We're not there today, but that's where we need to be heading. Love it. Mike, I know we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to also touch on, on a different subject that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, which is China. Uh, you co-authored a study on China's participation in the U.S. venture ecosystem. I think just a few weeks ago, we saw the announcement of Sequoia's China new, new $9 billion fund. Uh, I'm curious for your perspective on how has the environment changed over the last, let's say, three to five years for U.S. investors looking to invest in China? And what's your perspective on, on, on the whole space? So I think uh, the era where we're maximizing uh, globalization and uh, relying on China to be the world's manufacturer uh, is behind us. And companies ignore that at their peril. Uh, look at what happened with the pandemic. Uh, imagine if we were in a conflict with China and they were actually closing off uh, supplies to us. So we need to be rethinking some of the things that we've taken for granted for you know uh, 40 or 50 years, like uh, all globalization is good. Now we have to think globalization can be good, uh, but now there needs to be thought about how do we work closely with allies and partners. And if we've got a country that's a potential adversary like Russia or China, um, we need to be careful about providing them the tools to modernize their armed forces um, this isn't about helping their people. It's about those governments are authoritarian, coercive, and they're making sure all the technology flows to their militaries. So we need to be very careful about that. Uh, fortunately, uh, Xi has now uh, played a bigger hand in terms of trying to control his tech uh, companies. Clearly, what's important to him is maintaining absolute control, not that those companies would prosper. And so if I were leading an investment fund, I'd be very careful about money that I'm sending to China. I prefer it to get invested in the U.S. or allies, all for making investments in international arenas. But that money that you send to China, it's really up to Xi and the Chinese Communist Party, whether you ever get that money out and how that is being used. So we should just open our eyes uh, to that fact. Uh, and you can certainly see that He's she, she is going to take a much stronger hand in how that technology is used and what the companies are allowed to do. Uh, just add Jack Ma, uh, whether he felt like he had a free hand uh, with Ant Financial. No, uh, it's not the same as our system. And the government has the ultimate control of what happens with these companies, whether they go public 
uh, where their technology can be used and sold. So I think it's a mistake for companies to for investors to continue to focus on China. And Mike, um, I, I want to get your thoughts both locally, uh, both globally, but also about specifically the, the venture landscape. Um, what changes do you need? Do you, do you think that need to be made for us to, you know, rethink our relationship with China, specifically regarding venture capital? Uh, do we need to rethink CFIUS? Uh, wh what else do we need to do? Well, as as you uh, might know, Lucas, I worked on uh, some legislation that strengthened CFIUS hand. I think that at the and and I think CFIUS has made some uh, pretty significant changes. Uh, they have more power uh, now, more. Uh, uh, more authority, I should say, to be able to look at deals. I think that's a good thing for our economy. I think that needs to be harmonized more with allies because it's one thing for us to say, no, uh, you can't make an investment or make a purchase of a U.S. company. But if, if you can, if China can get the same thing from Germany, France, or New Zealand, uh, that's a problem. So that needs to be harmonized better with allies. There's been some effort there. There could be more. Second thing, the Export Control Reform Act was passed at the same time as FIRMA, Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act of 2018, but there's been very little done with those export controls to tighten them. Been a lot of work on sanctions, not as much work on export control reform. That is something the Commerce Department uh, can take up. But I'll say, as I have uh, said for the last uh, uh, four or five years, winning with China is not about these uh, defensive measures. It's not about investment screening. It's not about export controls. It's about the offensive game, meaning what are we doing to invest in ourselves, make ourselves more competitive, get more modern technology to the military. We have to be making sure that our innovation ecosystem is the envy of the world, which means that for a most of the countries in the world who can be allies and partners, we want the free flow of technology, capital, ideas. Uh, we want the U.S. to be the center of where that can be created, as it has been historically. That's going to ensure that for the future we have economic prosperity and national security. We can't wall ourselves off. And we've got to be making the right investments for the future. Federal R&D is a key part of the foundation that we create for future successful venture capitalists and entire industries. So think about what came out of the space race and the Cold War, miniaturized electronics, GPS, the Internet, software. All of those came out of originally defense-oriented investments. We need to make sure we've got enough investment going towards the future so that we're creating those uh, same uh, foundations for the next 20, 30, 40 years uh, that we had coming out of the Cold War. And when I look at the federal dollars that are invested in R&D, that's, that's in a continuous decline since the 1960s. It was 2% of GDP in the 1960s. It's 0.35%. 0.35% spent for national security applications today. That's not the profile of a country that's investing in its future uh, technology. So Mike, um, I think you might've just answered a part of my question, but when you think about the, the, the relationship between the United States and China moving forward, what is the right framework to think about it here? Uh, is it a hard bifurcation? Is it really deglobalization? Or is it more around building redundancies and resilience on the supply chain of critical parts of the, of, uh, of manufacturing and maintaining a lot of the, the low-cost production that we have in China? What, what, what do you think should be the, the, the key factors uh, of this relationship moving forward? Well, it's a little bit of uh, all of the above. So this is a long-term competition in my mind. 
And so we've got to be making sure we're making the right investments so that we can prevail with allies. We shouldn't try and do this alone. We should be doing it with our key allies uh, to make sure that we've got the right uh, levels of investment in breakthrough science, that we're encouraging uh, technology development, that we're thinking about the long term. I think a lot of our incentives uh, for investors and companies is way too short term oriented. Uh, we we provide the same R&D tax credit for someone doing a new dating app as someone trying to bring quantum technology to the market. Does that make sense? Why is long-term thinking anything over a year? Our capital gains tax structure set up where one year is the key dividing line. Is that long-term thinking one year and one day? Probably not. The Chinese are thinking about this differently. How do I develop long-term national capabilities and how do I make sure that technology underpins that because they see that as key to economic growth. Unfortunately, they're also using that same technology to create a police state that George Orwell would have uh, only dreamt of, right? It's it's unbelievable how they're using technology to control their people. Because I don't wanna live in that kind of society, and I'm sure you and everyone listening doesn't want to, we've got to make sure we continue to make those investments uh, in science and technology, that we're creating the breakthroughs, that we're setting the global standards with allied countries to make sure that our way of life continues uh, far into the future. And uh, while it could be challenged by China, it can't be overrun by China. So in, in light of all of these challenges, what keeps you the most optimistic? That in the US, we tend to be on an arc that gets things right in the long term. I'm frustrated like many of you all are that we're not moving faster. Uh, we're not making the kind of investments we need to on a time scale I'd like to see. Uh, I'd like to commend the Congress for the Chips and Science Act. That's a down payment on what we need to be doing. It's focused on semiconductors, but that's the key foundational technology for all of the uh, technology of the future that we might want to talk about, whether it's space or AI or um, cyber. It, it's chips that are driving a lot of that, but we need to expand that into the other, about a 10, set, 10 sets of technologies, including quantum, including biotech, that we need to be on the forefront of. So it's a good down payment. We need to be thinking more along those lines and making bigger investments, being bolder, uh, if we think about the long-term competition with China. Amazing. Mike, for folks that are looking to learn more about DIU, where can you point them to? Please come to our website, which is uh, diu.mil, uh, where there's a lot of information about how you as a company can work uh, with DIU and get a contract with the Defense Department. As I said already, we need the technology, we need the creative ideas that you're developing. So we want to make sure we can get those to warfighters. And it's important to know the Defense Department has such a broad variety of missions. You know, the military is first on the ground in foreign countries if there's a natural disaster. Their National Guard is helping U.S. respond to natural disasters, fires in California, floods that happen as a result of hurricanes. So we need to be supporting our military because they're often called on to do missions that uh, uh, we all benefit from citizens. Uh, the, the GPS technology that's maintained through government satellites operates our ATMs and keeps our economy going. So supporting the military is about keeping the modern way of life uh, moving forward. And we need your help to do that. Amazing. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. Uh, happy to do it, Lewis and Ian. Great to be with you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.